You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Lavelle Anderson. Lavelle is an assistant professor at the University of Memphis. He does work in philosophy of language, philosophy of race and aesthetics. More specifically, he works on black semantics and racial language. He is currently co-editing a companion to the philosophy of race, as well as a volume entitled Philosophers on the N-Word. In this episode, we talk slurs, racial humor, and swearing. Hi, Lavelle, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you? I'm fantastic. <laughs> Lavelle, tell me, how did you get interested in philosophy? Ah, uh, yeah, so that's kind of a story. I mean, it, at the, uh, well, so it started, right? I um, initially went to college, undergrad, right out of high school, and I went for a year and got bored. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, I was an aspiring musician so i thought that well school ain't necessary so i'm just gonna go out there and you know make these beats and get on (laughs) um so like seven years later when they didn't pan out quite the way i wanted it to i started thinking and plus i was working in these dead-end jobs i was working in factory jobs that paid uh, just above minimum wage um, which at the time was like five seventy-five or something like that. So this is it's a minute ago. Uh, so that wasn't enough to live. And I was working this job, which didn't require me to do much. So there was one job where uh, basically all I did was wash dirty, oily pans all day long. Um, and other job, other mindless jobs as well, where. Uh, stack uh, wood parts that came off of a saw or something like that. And what I started noticing was that I liked these kind of jobs because it let me think, basically. And so during that time, you know, I was, so I lived in, I grew up in St. Louis and I lived in St. Louis at the time. And, uh, you know, after work, I would go down to uh, Washington University's library and just sort of pick up stuff to read in the library. And one day I started reading Cornel West's The American Invasion of Philosophy. And, um, you know, from there I was kind of hooked. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Uh, sticking deeply about stuff. And so, you know, that sort of generated the initial interest. And so I wanted to find out more about what philosophy was. So I started talking to a few folks at different universities in the area about philosophy. And, um, I talked to one guy, this guy, Theodore Vitale, who was a, a philosopher at St. Louis University. And so I met with him. And he says at one point in the meeting, you know, I have the greatest job on earth. You know, what better job can you have than to sit around and think all day and get paid for it? And then from there, I was hooked. <laughs> so you, you do work in philosophy of language. How, how did you decide or what, what drew you to philosophy of language? Yeah, well, I'd always had a kind of fascination with language uh, in general. So even when I was doing the music thing, I was all about like lyrics and writing. I mean, I grew up reading a lot. And so I had been on, 
you know. Um, Harlem Renaissance writers pretty early on, actually, like somewhere just after junior high or in junior high or something like that. Okay. And so I was always interested in just the things that people do with language, the various things that people do with language. I was also sort of interested in uh, cross-linguistic stuff too. So I would wonder about, you know, learning a different language and the translation process, uh, how it could be sure that what was going on in a different language that I don't already know could map on to what uh, the, the ways that I were speak, was speaking in my native language. So those interests, those interests had always been kind of in the background. So the move into philosophy of language just seemed like a natural fit for me. So what makes a word a slur? And should slurs be prohibited? If so, on what grounds? Yeah, so the simple answer, at least, well, I should say that Ernie Lepore and I wrote a paper that was published, I think, in 2012 or so, in which the answer we give to that question about what a slur is, is basically it's a prohibited word, uh, a, prohibited, a prohibited word that a particular social group deems uh, a slur. Right? And so uh, the prohibition is, of course, doing a lot of work in our account. And we think that once you look at the kinds of features that slurs uh, exhibit, a prohibitionist kind of view explains those things uh, better than its alternative views. Right? So you have to explain things like, you know, for example, why we can't unilaterally detach the affect, hatred, and negative connotations tied to our slurs and use them interchangeably with their neutral counterparts. I mean, and so there, basically, what I'm saying, right, is that there are these slurs. We know who they refer to when people use them. We know who they're supposed to pick out. There are these other expressions that refer to the same group but lack the negative connotations of the slurs, right? So those are the neutral counterparts. Okay. Um, we also have to explain why occurrences of the slurs within things like definitions or within quotations can still provoke offense. We also need to explain why it's difficult to avoid slurring people when we're using someone else's term, right? uh, sort of indirectly quoting them, let's say. And so I think that uh, saying that slurs are prohibited expressions and that the prohibition is on their occurrence, that explains why uh, you can't sort of quote someone, for example, sort of indirectly and not provoke offense because the one who uses the, the slur to quote someone else is still using the slur, and that's a violation of the prohibition against its use, right? Or that, again, even in direct quotations, um, you get this worry too, which is why newscasters often employ uh, mechanisms like the N-word or something like that to kind of cloak the, the word itself, not expressly use the expression themselves, right? So even if I'm quoting Trump, Right. And given all the derogatory things that he's said about certain groups, even if I'm, I'm, I decide to quote him. Right. And even put that with my hands in quotes. You're suggesting that even though I don't hold the same negative attitude as the person who said it, it is still prohibited for me to say it. Yes, kind of. OK. Um, and why is why is that so? I, mean, I think there are you know, a couple of possible explanations one can give to why that's so. Uh, I think for some people, 
they want to ground that kind of prohibition in a moral principle or something like that, where calling someone a slur inf inflicts a certain kind of moral harm on them, or even mentioning the slur might also just, uh, you know, raise the negative associations that that word brings to mind and brings to bear. And so doing so is it in itself a kind of inappropriate action, a morally inappropriate action. Um, I'm not myself wedded to that kind of view. Mm -hmm. I think that um, probably a more general explanation about the prohibition of slurs is grounded in something like a group's, group's right to determine important aspects of their own identity. And so presumably what, a, what name a group is called is, you know, an important aspect of their identity. And so violations of the prohibitions of names that the groups explicitly prohibit in some sort of way of other, either explicitly sort of saying that this name is the name that we don't want to be called, or what is more likely that we just sort of observe linguistic practice and observe members of that group's response to being called such. Mm -hmm. um, those things are violations of this social norm, this norm of, uh, of a right to self-determination, which grounds the prohibition in the first place. Okay. So let me ask you this question. You all write about, I mean, there's several philosophers down that are writing about slurs, and you all have to write the words down, right? And I've seen, I mean, I've read your work, and I've seen certain groups refer to a certain slur, and it was written out. Are you also participating in something that one ought not to do, or is that different when one writes about it in a technical way as opposed to quoting someone directly? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, and I think the answer is that it's not always clear whether or not there's a simple, straightforward answer to it, actually. I think that, um, yeah, even in what I'll call uh, pedagogical uses, uh, you run the risk of provoking offense. And, and to be clear, I think the, the view that Ernie and I are pushing in the paper, right, is that prohibitions, violations of prohibitions explain uh, the offense response to the expressions. Uh, what, one thing we did not do in the paper is give a view about uh, when such offense provokings are themselves uh, problematic or racist, right? So, so I think it's possible to do something offensive, um, but yet not racist, if you're talking about a racial slur, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you might think that there's a kind of weighing that takes place uh, in these kinds of contexts, in pedagogical contexts, where we're trying to I don't know, gain knowledge of the mechanisms and uh, nature of these kinds of expressions, that the offense the potential for offense might be outweighed by the epistemological gains from doing so. Or maybe that there's something about the power of the expression that necessitates using, or sorry, mentioning the expression in the text uh, to illuminate the broader point. I wonder, is it possible for me tonight to, 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 to call another one of my friends up and we create a slur? <laughs> ourselves to refer to a particular group or in order for a slur to be a slur slur it must be popular it must be known not only by those who use it but those who it's using being used against yeah so i think this is where uh distinction between what i might call a slurring speech act and an expression that goes into the category of slur comes in handy right so i think that yeah if you and your friend were to 
try to coin an expression tonight that what you would succeed in doing when you target the group of your choice would be to perform a slang speech act towards that group. Uh, but that you weren't doing so, what, that in doing so, you weren't creating a slur, as it were. That's something that, that, of course, I think has to be, the word itself would have to be recognized by the group or relevant caretakers of the group uh, as an expression that's deemed prohibited. So it's not until the group prohibits the expression that it becomes a member of the category slur. Okay. So let's talk about the N-word. Is, is there a difference between N-word ER and uh, N-word GA? What arguments have been given that simply claims that non-blacks are prohibited from using either or one of these these uses? Okay, so I don't know the uh, I don't know if you want the FCC down your back. So I don't know if you want me to like <laughs> no uh, FCC. We can we can do whatever we want. All right, I'm gonna be real. I'm gonna be real then. Well, we'll know so, if we don't get a you know another podcast next month. But yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, I think. You know, many people see a difference between uh, nigger, the hard er, and nigger with a soft a. Something. Mm-hmm. So, so they believe that indicates indicates whether we're dealing with a slur or with a term of endearment, right? Uh, so, for instance, comedian uh, Lisa Lampanelli, who's a white woman, tweeted a pic of her and a friend Lena Dunham a few years ago, out in them streets with the cap, and she had the following caption. Uh, me with my nigga at Lena Lena Dunham of at HBO Girls. I love this biatch, right? Uh, so when she ultimately had to answer for her shenanigans, she made the infamous "I use the A and not the ER ending." It just means friend. And then for added uh, clarity, she, she of course it cross-referenced Urban Dictionary for all y'all waiting to know. <laughs> I mean, you get a similar kind of appeal from, for example, the Kentucky high school English teacher who was flamed in an episode of the boondocks. So after telling a black student to sit down, nigga, he insisted that he used the soft A rather than the hard ER, which, you know, again, is supposed to be the friendly version. So these two people, of course, they're appealing to a distinction between ER and A endings. But at the end of the, end of the day, I think that really it's just a, so nigga, with the A is really just a contemporary stylistic variant that captures the way that black folks have been pronouncing it for years. So it's more likely that it's just a way of explicitly signaling the difference in what speech act is being performed and not necessarily two different words. Um, so as far as arguments against non-black use go, I think some argue that since non-blacks haven't suffered in the, suffered the experiences of black folks in this country, they don't really have a right to appropriate abusive terms that target black people. So it's a kind of, uh, to borrow some rather contemporary language, you weren't with me shooting in the gym objection. <laughs> yeah. So we might develop this kind of argument, you know, along the following way, that black folks were left abandoned in a social wasteland with only scraps out of which to make a life, to build a community. And against all odds, we managed to do that. You, white folks, gave us leftover pig intestines, we made chitlins. You left us sticks and rocks, we made stick ball. You hit us with nigger, and we made it nigger. And on top of that, we managed to build community and experience joy. So then you, white person, see us experiencing joy and now want to get in on that action. But it's too late. You weren't invited to the party, and we don't take kindly to crashers. Um, I'm not unsympathetic to this kind of argument, right? That there's something about experiencing the venom, the vitriol of the expression 
that licenses one to, uh, you know, do with it what you will, to use it in certain kinds of ways. And if you haven't been under that experience, then you don't really have a right to it, right? Because it's kind of a, uh, I don't know, a, a cheap intrusion, if you were. But is this why blacks are able to produce what you call non-derogatory elocutions with the N-word? Yeah, I mean, basically, it's, um, and to, I guess, flesh it out a bit more, it's, we can borrow this notion of a community of practice that was first developed by anthropologists and then later applied to language and gender. Um, it's this notion of an aggregate of people who sort of come together around a mutual endeavor. And then in the pursuit of that endeavor, they build up certain practices, ways of talking, beliefs and values and such. And so you could think that, well, one of the, uh, practices, I might call it discursive practices that emerged within a community of practice or communities of practice within the African-American community uh, had to do with, you know, addressing oppressive speech. And then, of course, one way of addressing that oppressive speech was to take the speech itself and try to disarm it or, or flip it on its head, as it were. Um, and so what explains black usage, or at least the production of non-derogatory uses of the N-word in these black communities of practice is that they belong to a community of practice for w in which this kind of practice emerged. Okay, so this, this forces me to ask this question. What if I'm a white person and I was raised in a black family? Does that get me closer to being able to use it? And, you know, maybe your answer may be connected or maybe not with this next question. I remember watching the film Dope, and right. if you notice in the movie, the white kid, the white friend of, of the group of black kids, is constantly trying to get a pass to say the N-word with an A. But there is another minority, non-black minority in the group, who's able to get away with it. And the white kid is wondering, why does he get to, get to say it? If I'm white and I'm raised in an all-black family, that's all I know, right? Mm -hmm. So white on the outside, raised in an all-black family. Yeah. And what if I am another minority group who's also been oppressed, etc., and this kind of familiarity, probably not with the exact black experience, but experience with, with oppression, am I able to use the N-word with an A? Yeah, I think we can start with this sort of empirical data. Right? So we kind of see this already. We see situations in which we have non-black speakers who are, for all intents and purposes, part of a particular community of practice and for which this, you know, uh, non-derogatory use of the N-word occurs. And they are adopted into the community and given a pass by members of that community to use the expression in this non-derogatory way. Um, so it's not just a theoretical claim, it's an empirical claim right, that this is actually happening. And I think what explains those occurrences is this kind of appeal to an, a community of practice, which is largely a localized kind of notion right mm -hmm. so it's because of course that that local license that the non-black person gets uh in that particular community doesn't travel to all communities of practice right mm -hmm. uh, i think we saw this you know, several years ago for example with um so there is this uh white rapper v nasty in oakland who, uh you may or may not remember um who got in all sorts of trouble for using the N-word in one of her songs, I think. 
B Nasty's crew, her black friends came to her her defense, right? Saying, No, she's she's cool, she's one of us, she can use it. But then of course you had black folk in other places like, nah, I don't I don't we don't know her. I mean, and who are you to be giving her a pass, right? Um but at the level of the everyday, right? What she knew was that in her localized community, with her localized group of friends, uh, they shared this practice in which she was able to you know, produce these non-derogatory utterances. So that's you know what's hap- that, that's what happens there. And then we also see a kind of slippage, I guess, with respect to other communities who have also experienced you know oppression in the U.S. Right. So it's, it's there's always been a murkiness right, around the N-word. And, for example, uh, the Dominican and Puerto Rican communities in New York using using it as well. Right? Uh, we also see the the variations that arise due to gender, right? Because because J Lo is also Puerto Rican, right? Um, and she gets flack for using the N word in a song, but nonetheless, Fat Joe is able to use it all day long, right, without any issue, and he's also Puerto Rican, so. Um, yeah, it's just sort of complicated there. So, so what are the rules for for appropriating slurs? I have a friend who is just adamant that no matter how how we use "bitch," it always has uh, a seed of misogyny in it. So, so what are the rules? I think that there aren't really any hard and fast rules for doing so. Uh, there might be some rules of thumb. Um, so, one might say, "Well, only attempt to appropriate slurs that quote unquote belong to you." which is kind of a funny phrase because, you know, there's a real sense in which it doesn't really belong to the targeted group, but the targeting speakers or something. I mean, I mean, this is the kind of sentiment that James Baldwin, for example, talks about when he says nigger is a caricature that really belongs to white people. It's their fiction, right? fiction that white people have concocted to cope with their own psychological fallout over the kinds of atrocities that they've either been a party to or, um, have committed themselves. But nonetheless, there's still a, a psychological fallout or backlash for black folks too. And that fallout is going to be, you know, present for slurs that belong to their own group, but not really for someone else's. So nonetheless, only, only a, attempt to appropriate slurs that belong to you. But secondly, that you, well, can't do it alone. It's something that's, uh, a communal or yeah, a communal shared practice. Right? So you have to appropriation is successful, I guess, only in the midst of a community of practitioners who share and recognize the use. As far as addressing the participation in one's own degradation uh, charge, uh, so this is an I think an interesting departure from what we might think of as the linguistic mechanisms of appropriation. Right? So we can explain just on a social linguistic level why appropriation happens when it happens. But then there's a further question about whether or not a group should do so. And right? so you might share like a Cosby type of view where you're just deceiving yourself if you think that uses of the N-word, for example, are doing, in, doing anything other than reinforcing negative stereotypes about your own group. Um, it's not clear to me that there's a consensus on this issue, right? So, of course, people come down differently on this question. 
um, I often wonder about what someone's mental states or attitudes have to be like in order to make use of the N-word in a purportedly non-derogatory way, but nonetheless be slandering themselves or slurring themselves. I think you would have to have some kind of self-hatred or some kind of negative self-evaluation. And it's just not clear to me that, for example, the users of the N-word that I often come across sort of internally in, inside the black community have that kind of attitude. So let's transition now to, to, to racial humor, right? And I, I wonder if your same answer as it relates to uh, the practicing community point that you made earlier um, has to do uh, with my next question. So, so what is it? What is it that what is it about humor where depending on one's area of membership affects one's ability to make certain jokes? Right. Yeah. So I, th- I do think that the communities of practice notion applies here as well. Right. So that humor is also a kind of cultural production that has a particular social role. Uh, and again, for dealing with vulnerable groups, the role is going to be something similar to the 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 practices that emerge out of inward use. Right. Uh, Perhaps it serves as a mechanism for building solidarity or maybe even a cathartic practice right, in certain instances. And so, yeah, if you are, again, a member of the community of practice, that licenses you in a certain kind of way to make these kinds of jokes, whereas if you're not a member of the community, it, it makes it difficult for you to do so. Does this also matter in regards to us as an audience being able to laugh or not laugh? Does that also depend on the practicing community? Yeah, I think so. So I think that Again, um, when we are, let's say if we're looking at a, a comedian or, or something like that and selling racial jokes, it's important to see that comedian as a member of a shared community of practice because that, I think, affects uh, how we interpret what's going on, how we interpret the, the comedian's jokes. Of course, intricate humor in some instances and if you don't have the relevant background experience, you might miss out on all sorts of cultural cues, right? And so that is, you miss the joke and perhaps are laughing at the wrong thing. And then what are you laughing, what you're laughing at might in itself be problematic. So I do think that, well, so it might not so much be a person's being white per se, and that's the problem, right? But it's their lack of cultural familiarity, lack of familiarity with certain kinds of experiences that might pose what we might say a, is a hermeneutical barrier to understanding the, the humor. Why do swears slash curse words, why do they have the power that they do? So when I, when I, so when I hear a British person, yeah, I wonder if the power of a uh, practicing community has a lot to do with me not feeling the power of their, of their curse words or hearing their stem swear. I'm not familiar with the taboo. To right. even feel the effect of the curse word. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's right. The particular taboos are going to be, I think, society relative, right? And so, of course, we're acculturated in certain kinds of ways in our particular social cultural locations, uh, situations. And so we pick up on what the, the gravitas, the, the feelings of our own taboos, but not so much on others. And so when I hear wanker, for example, or something like that, I'm I'm not particularly moved because I hadn't grown up with that particular type of word. 
So, so you mentioned earlier that that you were a musician. Uh, for the folks who don't know, what instrument did you play? And are you still playing? So instruments with an oh, S, oh. with an S. Correct uh, me. <laughs> no, I, um, yeah, so I started off playing something. The first instrument that I learned was actually the trumpet. Um, but I basically learned the trumpet and the piano around the same time. Uh, so I sort of grew up playing the trumpet and the piano and then later added the guitar. And yeah, I was, uh, I was a musician for a while. So I gigged with a few bands in St. Louis. I played at various clubs and places there. I did some recording with some people, some groups. Uh, and I even turned down a, a North African tour, actually. Yeah, that was the, that was back in the day when I was, you know, trying to, to make it as a musician, which is a hard life, which is a hard life. And do you still play? Every now and then. I mean, so I might hop on the piano when I hear something that I want to learn. Um, I had been going through Thelonious Monk's catalog for a bit, learning various songs out of his catalog for a while. Or if I hear something on the radio that catches me and I want to, play it whatever i'll do that too how has living in memphis changed your I guess your musicianship and or your your ear your music ear has it changed your taste has it changed your knowledge um not really because memphis musically is similar to st louis i mean there's a heavy jazz and well sorry st louis is probably more heavily jazz than memphis is but there's still a blues and gospel undercurrent as well and so a lot of the stuff that I grew up playing. Uh, like, so I played for a gospel group at one point in St. Louis and gospel in Memphis is also pretty huge, right? So all of the churches here in the area have to have great musicians. It's like, a, um, I don't know, it might be blasphemy to go into a church that doesn't have really good musicians. Uh, so musically, um, it's kind of on a par with what I had already been familiar with. Lavelle, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciated our conversation. Uh, it was a pleasure. It's a pleasure. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.